Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, the 24th of August, 2022. Uh, we did a show earlier today about bad luck, about the people who have the unfortunate luck of uh, being born black in America. Uh, we talked to Linda Villarosa, the author of Under the Skin, the hidden toll of racism on American lives and on the health of the nation, suggesting that those who have the bad fortune of being uh, born with black skin tend to get sick much earlier and get tr mistreated worse and worse by the medical system. Uh, Villa Rosa is a very distinguished writer. She's a contributor to the 1619 Project. And um, she wrote a piece in the New York Times recently about how this bad luck particularly manifested itself in the COVID uh, epidemic in terms of what she calls this terrible price of the bad luck of being born black in America. Uh, we also did a show yesterday with Anya Kamenetz, who's the medical correspondent of NPR and the author of a new book called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now, suggesting that children who were born poor or are born poor from poor families had a much worse year uh, in COVID times than the wealthy kids and that they had their year stolen for us. Bad luck, but there may also be good luck too. My guest today is the author of a new book called The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Um, he teaches both at New York University and the London School of Economics. Um, the subtitle of the book is The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck, and it's our good fortune that Christian Bush is joining us from New York today. Christian, uh, welcome and congratulations on the book. What would you say, Christian, to the people who have the misfortune of being born black in America today. Yeah, well, thanks so much for, for having me, Andrew. It's great to be uh, here. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, the, the way kind of I've been looking at luck is that there's the kind of uncontrollables, right? So the uncontrollables are the things that we are born into particular settings, particular families. A lot of our work is in very low resource uh, environments, for example. That's kind of the starting position. Like, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of societal inequality in that regard. And then our work forces a lot on, focuses a lot on the question of what can we influence? What is it that we can create? And so that's kind of really this exciting idea of, of serendipity, this, this active luck. And, you know, to give you an example, maybe, uh, where, you know, imagine you're in a coffee shop and uh, you, uh, you know, have erratic hand movements like I do, uh, then you spill a lot of coffee, right? So imagine you spill coffee over someone and uh, that person looks at you extremely annoyedly, uh, especially in London, that, that happened to me all the time. I, I gather you, 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 you have, a, a, you know, you, you grew up in, in those surroundings as well. Uh, but, you know, you, imagine you spill coffee over someone and, and that person looks at you slightly annoyedly, but you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. And now you have two options, right? One option is you just say, I'm so sorry. Here's a napkin. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with that person? Option number two, you, 
you know, start that conversation and that turns out to become the love of your life, your co-founder, you name it. The point is that our reaction to the unexpected, what we do in that unexpected moment has a huge impact on the eventual outcome in different types of circumstances that we're in. And that's what I find so fascinating that in almost all circumstances that we looked at from, you know, the Cape Flats in Cape Town, where we work with social enterprises among the poorest of the poorest to the CEO of MasterCard, there seem to be some people that have a little bit more serendipity than others. And so that's really what this work is about. Is there a, an evangelical quality to it? The idea that we should be somehow believing in ourselves? How do we create this good luck, Christian? Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's, it's really important and, and to your initial point to, to really make sure that it's very clear that we can never blame anyone for bad luck, right? We all have people around us who are dying. I think COVID was one of those kind of examples where societal inequality completely kind of exacerbated existing inequalities and so on. I think that is something where I'm very excited about also to think about policy and we can definitely talk more about this, how we, how we, how we kind of balance that inequality. I think on the mindset side and, and the, the kind of side that we can control, I think what's, what's really interesting is that there's particular things we can all do, right, that, that help us to have more certainty. So for example, um, I'm a big fan of the hook strategy. And the hook strategy is all about saying, you know, especially when we get this dreaded, what do you do question, right? Go to any kind of setting you're in and you meet a new person, they will ask you, what do you do or something along those lines. And we might say something like, hey, I'm Andrew, I'm hosting this cool podcast and I'm uh, doing expose things. Um, or, you know, what Andrew, uh, what uh, Oli Barrett does, a wonderful uh, entrepreneur in London, is that he casts a couple of hooks. So he would be saying something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. We're hosting piano sessions. You should stop by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. Uh, my sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. Uh, you should give a guest lecture. And so the point is we can, into every conversation, see the couple of interesting talking points where the other person can connect the dots for us. And so that's really what serendipity is about. Once you kind of get away from this idea that serendipity is just an event that happens to us. So that's completely passive to actually it's a process, a process of something unexpected happening, but then us imbuing meaning in this, us doing something with it. And once we look at it as a process, we can influence it either by kind of, you know, casting more of these hooks and, and having serendipity happen or learning how to connect the dots better and, and turn it into positive outcomes. The, the two examples, um, the, the two examples that you've given, Christian, sound to me more like sales tips. You, you spill a cup of coffee on a girl in a, in a coffee shop and she happens to be pretty. So you use it as an example to chat to her or you happen to be in an airport waiting room and someone else looks interesting and you figure out a way to talk to them. I don't really understand what it has to do with luck. It simply means being a better salesperson. You teach at both uh, the NYU and the LSE Business School, which is fair enough, which is fine. But all you're doing really is teaching people how to sell, aren't you? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you think about what life is, right? Life is a lot about how do I kind of get you excited about an idea that I have, right? Unfortunately, a lot of times it's kind of people's opinions, right? That they're just kind of selling to others. And, you know, every conversation where you're trying to sell your kind of perspective, right? And so... I think what's really interesting even when is, even when you're trying to seduce a, a young lady in a coffee shop, is that sales in your mind, at least as a business professor? Well, look, I think sales, you know, 
whatever definition we use, I think what life is about a lot is about interaction, right? And interaction means how do I take an idea and kind of somehow, you know, see if you might be interested in that idea. And that might be with books as much as it is with flirting as much as it is with, you know, how do you kind of in a way go about life and go to the passport office and get the passport quicker done. I mean, you know, in a way, we're always trying to kind of convince people of something in, in some way or the other. And, and so I think what's really interesting about this and why I'm so excited about it is you're right, there's kind of the sales stuff, you know, what's interesting that helps us in our professional life. But what I'm really interested in is the question of how does it truly improve our life, especially in tough circumstances. So I had two near-death experiences in life where I can tell you that, you know, in a way life can be over very quickly, right? So we can all run in front of a car tomorrow. We can all essentially drop that any moment. But, but then the question is, what do we do with those kind of moments, with those kind of crises? Do they shape us or do we try to shape as much as we can? And so I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl's uh, book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about the question of how do we find meaning in the toughest of circumstances? And, you know, serendipity is all about how do we imbue meaning in accidents? How do we imbue meaning in unexpected situations? And so if we reframe situations from, oh, no, someone broke up with me and, you know, now I'm the person who's broken up with to, oh, my God, maybe this could now be finally that I can find the person I'm truly, you know, meant to be with. Then actually what we see is that a lot of times luck or not luck uh, tends to be, you know, depending on when we look at it. So bad luck, right? A breakup might be the starting point, the inflection point for something really good. And, and that's, uh, Andrew, kind of maybe to bring it a bit to the kind of science of this, you know, our research is a lot with people who try to run companies, who try to run families, who try to essentially kind of push things forward in a good way. And what's really interesting is that a lot of times they have this ability to cultivate serendipity, to see a little bit more in unexpected moments, and then to turn that into positive outcomes, and mostly actually in moments of crisis. And that's what I'm really excited about, that I think it's a way to look at life with a kind of rational optimism rather than with either naivete and, and a naive optimism or kind of the cynical depressionism that I think is, is around there a lot. It's, it's to Wendy's point in one of your last conversations, right? How do you do that both end where you say, you know what? It doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be sales or not sales. Actually, um, we can do that as a, as a way to live a better life. What does it have to do though, uh, Christian, with, with science? The, the, the Kirkus book review of your work um, suggests that um, uh, your 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 argument often veers into what it calls pseudoscience speculation and new agey platitudes. Um, people often fall back on science. It's like when I have a guest on the show and they say, "Oh, the research shows this or that." It usually means that they actually can't support their argument and that they're falling back on some unnamed research. Where is the hard science here? I just don't see it personally. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I'd be delighted to send you a copy of the book. And I'd, I'd have hoped that the Curvix Reviewer would have actually read the book rather than the kind of summary of it, because then they would see there's so many footnotes to um, hard, hard science there, both in the social sciences, in the natural sciences, molecular chemistry, you know, where they show how you can accelerate um, molecules with unknown reactions to have more kind of serendipity happen in that. Um, social sciences where you can show that when you, you know, for example, have certain space arrangements, serendipity becomes more likely uh, to happen and so on. So there's a lot of science behind it. But I think you point to a really important point here that at the end of the day, what, what, what was the biggest pleasure with this work was to say, you know what, 
how do we try to bring together the different areas where some people might feel it's at the boundary of what we think is possible, right? So for example, my research, a lot of my research is in the, in the management context. So we do, for example, studies where we go into a business incubator, we look at how serendipity evolves over time with enterprises, and then we try to understand what is it behind it. When this entrepreneur unexpectedly bumped into another entrepreneur and they unexpectedly figure out, oh my God, you know, this could be a relation, this could be some opportunity. What do they do with it over time? How does it unfold? Or experiments where you put people into exactly the same situation. I can tell you one of my favorites in a second where you can put people into exactly the same situations where they face something unexpected and only some of them will turn that into positive outcomes. So there's a lot of those kind of things, experiments, um, longitudinal studies where you look over time how serendipity evolves. Um, there's also counterfactuals. So you try to think about what could have happened and then what actually happened and try to figure out um, what could determine that. But then I think, um, you know, where that review was was kind of like stuck a little and where, again, I wish they had like read the, the footnotes to it, which actually said that some people might see that this is, um, you know, the two sentences that were about uh, something at the, at the boundary, which was essentially the question on quantum approaches. So, so three sentences in the book are about, or a couple of, of more sentences are about the question of how do we think about um, things like energy, right? So, you know, imagine you're in a library and you sit next to someone with good energy, right? Versus with someone who's kind of the slouching, bad energy type person. We all know that it has an effect, right? We all know that next to the high energy person, we might get more work done than next to someone who just kind of like is tired and, and sleeps. And so what I've been fascinated about is, is there some kind of idea that we can learn that energy does travel or that we can learn that, you know, if someone has good energy, they tend to have more serendipity because they attract more people with it, because people want to help them more and so on. And so um, long story short, I think what, what's really exciting about this is that, yes, we have the hard science on the management side, on the natural sciences side, but then also there's those areas that we don't know yet about. There's those areas where I can't tell you how you would measure that that good energy of a person actually, or what is good energy, right? So those kind of things where I really don't know about this. And so what I tried to do with the book was to say, how do we bring that together? The hard science with some of these kind of things that are a little bit out there and I don't know how to measure them, but because they say the same thing, I'm intrigued in them. And so the footnote was then saying, look, you know, this is just something, I don't have any proof for this. It's just a hunch. So take it with a grain of salt. And so I wish reviewers would, would read that part as well. Um. I mean, to what extent are you simply vindicating a certain lifestyle or a certain type? Um, in Inc. magazine, they talk about entrepreneurs like Richard Branson and Mark Cuban embracing the quote-unquote serendipity mindset. You have all sorts of people promoting this, but they're always the most successful people, whether it's Branson and Cuban, whether it's Arianna Huffington, whether it's Reid Hoffman. It sounds to me like the ideology you're putting forward is just a way in which highly wealthy, highly successful, highly mobile and motivated people make themselves feel better about themselves. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this is so I think there's two aspects, right? So one is that a lot of the book is about um, stories of people from backgrounds that we might usually not hear from, right? So it's the kind of Marlon Parker in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, extremely resource-constrained environments who, despite the lack of all these resources, tends to make a lot of serendipity happen because of the kind of mindset. And so part of this is about saying, how do we celebrate those people who usually are unseen? And then there's the other part, which is, you know, the kind of Ariane Huffington's of the world who are people who, in a way, have done a lot of this intuitively, 
but now it gives them a vocabulary to say, you know what? I've always tried to justify why luck happens and people always say I'm lucky, but you know what? I worked really hard to be lucky. And this is now a vocabulary that helps me to say, this is not a passive thing. I'm not running a company here based on just like, you know, luck falling into my lap here. I'm running a company based on having a vision, based on having a good culture, but actually I'm also open to the unexpected. And so I'm cultivating serendipity here. And that's actually the initial idea and the initial hope with the book was to say, let's give those people who intuitively do it a way so that they actually have an active vocabulary that if you're the CEO of MasterCard, you can go into the boardroom and instead of kind of, you know, portraying like most people do, right? I did this, then I did exactly this, and then exactly this happened, right? Nobody believes this, but everyone tells stories like this because it, it gives them authority and control, but actually life is more like a squiggle, right? And so this work is about saying, you know what? Actually, why don't we appreciate that life is more like a squiggle? Why don't we appreciate that you have life to sometimes like a what? not know Sorry. it? Like a what? Like a squiggle, like a squiggle, like a... Like it's not just kind of step by step by step, but sometimes there's this unexpected thing that that veers you away from the linear path. And then actually that turns out to be serendipity. And then we say, oh, I planned this, right? But actually what a lot of times happens is that only at hindsight we realize, oh my God, this was kind of something I did that then led to X, Y, Z thing. So long story short, with those kind of executives, a lot of times the idea is that, hey, I can now go into the boardroom and say, I cultivated an environment where the unexpected became our friend. And so I'm not pretending I always knew that that was the case, but I created a culture that made that happen and that helped us to, to get there. On the second, and I, I think, Andrew, the, the more important point, I'm actually extremely excited, especially about the people who might be cynical about it, right? So especially those people, actually, you know, I initially thought this book would be for people who anyways do it and then give them more tactics and more strategies. But what I realize is the biggest impact comes from people who are cynical at the beginning, right? Oh, luck is what happens to other people or X, Y, Z, those kind of things. But actually, you know, giving you an example uh, of a colleague of mine in, in London, he used to be this guy, you know, he came to me and he was like, Christian, I like you, I like your content, but I don't need more serendipity. You know, like I have my family, I have my job, I'm fine. Like, why, why would I need this stuff? And so we made a deal and we said, you know what? ask questions slightly differently when you have your next conversations. Instead of asking the, what do you do, boring stuff, ask something like, you know, what do you enjoy doing? Or, you know, something that kind of like brings a little bit out, like what is the person all about versus just kind of putting them into a box or, you know, cast a couple of hooks, like what are you excited about at the moment that you just had your kind of uh, next child and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to go about this. And so he, you know, and then we made the deal, come back in a couple of weeks and, and tell me how, um, how that played out. He comes back after a couple of weeks and he's like, oh my God, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. And to me, that was really at the core that I think there's so much cynicism out there. There's so much kind of, oh, like, you know, some people luckier than others and so on. So, and I think we always have to work on those societal constraints. And I think that is objectively the case. And we, we, we also definitely should talk about this. And at the same time, I think a lot of times the mindset question of, do I believe that I can do something and then do something about it? actually can really make us more joyful and, and more meaningful. And that's what, what a lot of that research is about, to say, how do we actually help people improve their life in terms of feeling they have more agency about what they're doing versus feeling the, the loss of control that makes us anxious and, and, and feel a bit more helpless in, in this kind of world that's so crazy at the moment. Yeah, I take your point on agency. But what about the issue, Christian, of not just making the world better for yourself or making you feel better about yourself or selling to more people or making more connections or going to Burning Man or going to TEDx. 
in many ways, you seem to be vindicating a certain sort of lifestyle of the rich and, and, and mobile in this world. What about making people better? I mean, you're part of Leaders on Purpose and also the, the Sandbox community. To what extent is your book about um, not creating good luck, but creating good people or maybe making people realize the Reed Hoffmans and the Ariana Huffingtons and the Mark Cubans of the world that actually their luck should make them better people, more responsible people, more people willing to give back. Is that part of your argument? I love that question because I think that's really at the core of it. That to me, you know, luck, luck, luck is something for a lot of people, luck is a nice to have, right? If you're if you already have a really good life and you have a bit more luck, that's great, but but it doesn't necessarily like have that kind of step change. Have it, but for others, it kind of introduces dignity, it introduces hope, it introduces like this feeling of agency. And so to give you an example, I, as I mentioned, a lot of my work is, is in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, where there's an amazing organization called Reconstructed Living Labs. And the first time I went there, so what they do is low-cost education programs for people who you know live in the Cape Flats, who don't have access to, to, to education, who don't have access to a lot of things. And so they say, here's a simple process of how you can build your own business, 10 steps to build your business, 10 steps to use social media to, um, you know, make X, Y, Z happen. And then they help with the ecosystem and the connections and everything else. And the first time I went there, I asked them, so what is, what is something I, as the white guy, you know, do-gooder type person coming into your context should never ask you that all these other do-gooders who come here ask you all the time. And what, what my now very good friend who's, who's running the organization said is, look, Christian, never ask me first what I need because if you ask me what I need, you put me into the role of the victim, the beneficiary, someone who kind of, you know, needs your benevolence. But if you come in and say, what's already here? How can we make the best of it? You can still think about resourcing and everything else, but we meet on the same level. We, we are now kind of both assuming that the other one has something to give as well. And you know what, what, that, what that did to me is, and what I found fascinating is, I look completely different now. At, at all these situations where people don't have agency. Instead of thinking about how do you resource this and then make people feel even worse about it, right? Because they feel I didn't get to solve this myself. So this person now has to help me to help my child. Like how, how does this work? They do the opposite. labs essentially goes into an impoverished community and they, instead of saying, what do you need? What's the resource you need? They say, what's already here and how can we make the best of it? Oh, there's an old training center. Uh, there's an old garage. Fantastic. That could be a training center. There's a former drug dealer. Fantastic. That person will be very resourceful. That person will be very creative. That person will have amazing social capital. And if we can turn them into a teacher, you can turn a community around. And that's really what at the core of their model and why, why we do a lot of work together around serendipity is that at the core of their model is to say, once you start doing this, once you look at, at, at kind of those resource constraints and say, you know what, maybe there's still something I can do myself, then people feel they can create their own luck and that gives a lot of dignity. And again, that doesn't take away from all the objective changes that we have to do, but also it kind of gives people the feeling I can be part of solving my own problems versus having some kind of government come in and, and helping me out. Well, it sounds to me, Kristen, a little like a kind of neoliberal argument. We don't need the government. All people need to do is self-improve. Uh, is is. Uh, it, it's that could be very troubling to a lot of people. The idea, well, Reed Hoffman's done it, Richard Branson's done it, Ariana Huffington's done it. You can do it too. Well, look, and that comes back to to Wendy's wonderful book, by the way. I highly recommend it. The, the both end, right? Which is saying, 
I think the days are over where we say either government top down or communities bottom up. That's just not how the world works anymore. But the, the way kind of, you know, I've, I've been working in the social impact space for, 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 for over 10 years now. And I can tell you, I've what seen is, a lot of... What does that mean, the social impact space? What, what does that mean? Well, so the question essentially, how do we essentially people who live in, you know, context of poverty or some kind of constraints, how do we alleviate that? How do we essentially go about and say, how do we have people have their own agency and, and create a little bit more, uh, you know, of a good life to your point than, than they could? And so, you know, a lot of that kind of work that we've done over the last years, we've seen a lot of failures, right? We've seen governments come in and say, yay, let's give people money to solve their problems. We've seen foundations come in and say, yay, great, let's give people funding for X, Y, Z thing. And then after two, three years, it all fails because people didn't feel ownership. People didn't feel they were part of it. And so what this work is a lot about saying is, how do we combine those two? It's not either government or entrepreneurial kind of bottom up. It's combining the two. It's about saying, how do we enable people to create their own luck locally and then work with the government to you know, get them into a cool school afterwards or to, to do something else? So I think it's, it's really kind of combining those two. And that's what this work is a lot about. Christian, what should become of those who uh, don't have the skill or the fortune in creating good luck? What should become of those people in the world who have bad luck? Uh, the kind of people that uh, Linda Villarosa talks about. What, what, what is their fate? What, what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that we have to think more holistically about how do we improve the lives of those that don't have a lot of agency, right? In my case, in our research is a lot. Imagine the rickshaw puller in India who, you know, they can make as much money as they want. If you're in a local power structure where the local kind of mafia type person will, will take all that money from you, it doesn't help you at all. So there's a theoretical agency here that you can pull the rickshaw and like own like part of that rickshaw, but the money will end somewhere else. So, you, so your actual agency is very, very limited. Um, and the same to your point, right? There's, there's racial inequality, there's, um, there, there's gender inequality, there's a lot of different inequalities that we have to work on. But holistically, I feel there's always this compartmentalization, right? It's kind of like, oh, let's work a little bit on this. this. That, that word gets used a lot by people in business school. What does it mean? Yeah. Well, so in this case, imagine take, take an educational reform, right? So take, take the example... You're the government and you say, yay, let's reform schools and universities and let's give a scholarship to um, uh, people in, in less privileged society, uh, communities um, and, and let's get them to Harvard and to have a great education, right? Well, bravo. Now you get that person to Harvard, but that person now will be in a structure where all these other kids in their, in their program will in the evening phone up like the, the, the dad and the mommy who will kind of give them an introduction to the internship person. They will call up. Um, the old friend who will give them a tip about how to ace their exam. And so the point here is that a, a kind of non-holistic approach is to say, I give you a scholarship. A holistic approach is to say, okay, what else does it need to remove the barriers to actually benefiting from this scholarship? So how do I remove the barrier? One way, of course, if I give a scholarship, who are three mentors here from you know, different parts of society who are dedicated to that person? So that person can call them up in the evening and say, I, I need your help. Uh, for this job. I need your help to ace this exam. And so it's really kind of thinking about the, the you know, again, an overused, um, but I think very useful um, expression, the ecosystem, the kind of idea of like, it is like a nature where it's not enough to just plant a tree, right? You, you need, 
you need everything around this um, and, and an ecosystem like a nature depends on that, you know, if it doesn't rain, the, the, the tree will die, right? And so you need those kind of different pieces, similar with a mentor. You need a bit of rain from a mentor to, to actually make it happen. I appreciate your optimism and energy, but ultimately when you pair all this down, it sounds to me like you're rather pessimistic. You have a very cynical way of which the world works. Everything gets done through networks, through who you know, if you don't have wealthy parents or, or wealthy people to call up in the evening, you're bound for failure. Is that really the way the world works through connections? I, I think I think that the worldview is the opposite of cynicism. I think it's very Viktor Frankl. Um, you know, Viktor Frankl, he had this beautiful idea um, that, you know, um, if you start as an optimist, right? Like he had this, he, he had this beautiful kind of story of the flight instructor, right? So the flight instructor told him, Victor, if you want to fly like this, you have to start like this because the wind will pull you down. So if you start as a realist, you end up as a depression, depression as a depressionist in a way. But if you start as an optimist, you end up as the real realist. And, and you know, I've, I've always been kind of very optimistic about the world. I'm very optimistic about people. I try to see the best in everyone. And then at the same time, I have a certain realism about incentives, about how people kind of try to figure out for themselves a lot of times first what they want to do in the world. And so what, what, what a lot of our work tries to figure out is what is it that you need to be truly successful? And, and yes, social capital, social networks is a key part, but the key and, and the reason why the book is, is called The Serendipity Mindset is really that idea that you have a lot of agency no matter what kind of uh, uh, network you're in at the moment. Give an example. I've done uh, some work with, with uh, kids who were in prison, right? So those kids, when they come out of prison, um, that's not really, you know, when they try to explain the gap in the in the CV, that's a tough job to do, right? Oh, you know, you can't just say I was on holidays for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or, or years, right? So, so that's a tough kind of first step towards a potential employer or something else. But so what we did was to say, you know what? You don't have social capital at the moment. You don't have a lot of signaling reputational capital at the moment. But what you do have is access to multipliers. What's a multiplier? Imagine, you know, in London, if you have something like the LSE or, you know, um, in Oxford, uh, Oxford University, whatever it is, institutions that host public speakers and that have open kind of sessions with those public speakers, public events, right? LSE has one or more than one almost every day. And so you go to a public event like this where you have the CEO of MasterCard speaking and then you have 300, 400 people in the audience. And so whenever they ask, so any questions in those kind of sessions where they allow for questions, you're the first one who gets up energetically so that they can't ignore you. Not too much, but like in the way, you know, as a moderator, I can tell you, you're always looking for, oh my God, please someone stand up so that there's no awkward silence. So you're the first one when they ask about questions, you're the first one who stands up. And then what you're doing is you build in a hook when you ask the question. What you're doing is you say, thank you so very much, dear speaker, for the great talk. So you make it all about the speaker. It's all about them as someone who just went through a tough period or whatever you feel comfortable sharing, right? It shouldn't be too much. Like you should just do something that in that context makes sense to share as someone who just kind of had a rough patch and is really excited about IT technologies. I wondered, what do you advise me to do? Now, then the speaker will answer something and, you know, it makes it easier to talk with them later, which is nice. But what usually happens almost every time is that after the speech, three or four or five or six people come to the person who asked the question. People out of the audience come to the person and say, oh my God, such a coincidence. You know, my sister just went through something like this. I want to put you in touch with someone who helped her. Oh my God, such a coincidence. My uncle is currently doing X, Y, Z. 
CSR initiative. They, they, they would love to help people like you, whatever it is. My point is that what you did here is you turned the audience of 400 people into potentially those who could help you. And so I'm a big fan. That's just one example, but I'm a big fan of thinking about how do I leverage the social capital of others? And that's a mindset question at the core. Yeah, again, it sounds to me like you're turning everybody, uh, you're turning the world into a giant LinkedIn uh, or TEDx conference or Burning Man, all networking, which is fine for, for, for some people. Most people find that awkward and, and, and rather ugly and shameful. I mean, we're not solely in the business of selling ourselves. Let's end on Viktor Frankl. You talked about him influencing you. Viktor Frankl was deeply influenced by the Holocaust. We did a show earlier today with Linda Kinsler on the Holocaust. Come to this court and cry um, how the Holocaust ends. It's a book about the Holocaust in Latvia and in Riga. Of course, the Holocaust is the ultimate extreme of bad luck if you happen to be caught in that. Um, you talked about Vic Victor Frankl, and you're right. Victor Frankl's experience was transformed into agency, and he built a new life. There are many other responses to the Holocaust. The one that always traumatizes me, I guess, is Primo Levi, the great Italian writer. He, he went to Auschwitz. He survived. He wrote books about it, books about agency. And then ultimately, he gave up and committed suicide in Turin 20 or 30 years later. In other words, it's very hard, Christian, if you haven't gone to LSE or NYU Business School, it, it might be very hard to get over bad luck. The bad luck, for example, of ending up in Auschwitz. Do we have to simply accept that and recognize that sometimes human agency isn't enough? Well, I think there's two, two pieces to your, to your story, right? So the, the first piece that you said about relationships, look, my life has been about trying to figure out how can you create meaningful relationships rather than transactional ones. So I think... What we talked about, you know, for your audience was practical ideas of how. Yeah, but I have to say that for you, I don't see any difference between meaningful and transactional. For you, everything is transactional. If it's tra if it's successfully transactional, then it's meaningful. Not necessarily. Well, that's me, the way you're presenting it. Yeah, as you go to an event mm -hmm. and you you ask a question at the end that will that will trigger other people coming up to you and you building a career that's purely for better or worse. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it is mm -hmm. a, a highly transactional view of the world. Well, and, and look, this is, you know, I, I wished we had a couple more hours to talk about these questions in this conversation. I focus on very kind of, you know, practical things we can all do in our lives if we are in tough, uh, tough spots. But, you know, at the end of the day, look, I think the most beautiful thing in life is, is a relationship where you don't feel you take from someone or someone else takes from you. I'm a big believer in this. You know, I'm a father. I have a 10-month-old. The, the biggest gift in life is that I can be part of her life in a way where I'm giving rather than taking. And, and that's the case with my wife. That's the case with most people around me. I try to surround myself with people who are, who are, who are you know, very kind of um, uh, giving in their sense. I'm very giving in my sense. So that's absolutely not. And I'm sorry if there was a misunderstanding here. Let me be very clear about this, that at the core of this work, is to think about how do we get away from transactional shit like, oh my God, hey, here's, you know, I go to an event and I want something from you. No, quite the opposite. I want people to talk about what they are really excited about so that they can connect by other things they are really excited about to them. And that's meaningful to me in the sense of saying, what do we really care about together? Nobody cares if you tell me your life history about 
how great you were at accounting and, and calculating exquisite numbers. What I care about is, hey, what, what, what was your life experience? Like, how did it shape you? Like, how did you evolve into the human being you are? And so I think that's kind of at the core of this work. And, you know, I, then maybe we should do a second podcast if that wasn't clear, um, but this is really at the core of it. And to be honest with you, I think the reason why I, I highlight relationships so much is humans are social beings. That's at the core of, 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 of who we are. If you think about Viktor Frankl, the reason why he was able, or one of the reasons why he was able to survive was because he said, you know what? I want to help other people in that camp. And by doing this now, I have a purpose. I have a purpose now because if I wake up tomorrow morning and I can help that person feel better about themselves, now there's a reason for me to be. I think we've seen that a lot during COVID, right? Where you saw people who intrinsically lost their meaning for some time because they said, you know what? If this kind of can happen, everything can happen. But then they realized, hey, you know what? My elderly labor, uh, neighbor doesn't have access to food at the moment because they can't go outside because they will catch COVID. So maybe I can bring them some food. And, you know, yes, doing that is, is an enlightened self-interest, right? It's that kind of idea where you're saying doing that makes you feel better, right? But also it, it generally helps that other person. So I think at the core of a lot of our work is, work is this kind of enlightened self-interest thinking where you're saying, you know what? Tell me one incidence where there's altruism for the sake of altruism um, that, that in a way doesn't have any inkling of what is meaningful to me at that point, which in a way then is that kind of enlightened self-interest. So that's really what a lot of this is about to say, you know, I don't think, again, it's black or white. I think it's a both end where um, in a way going into a conversation and thinking about how can I contribute to someone much more important than what I can take from them. And that's really, um, Andrew, if, if there was a misunderstanding, I'm very sorry about this because that's at the core of my life philosophy that, you know what? we'll all be dead. Like, look, I had two near-death experiences in my life. When you're on your deathbed, like those two times where I was almost dead, you don't care about how many cars you have in your garage. You don't care how many books you have in whatever, whatever. What you care about is like, shoot, what impact did I have? Like in terms of, you know, my, 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 my partner, my, my family, my whatever it is. And, and I think that at the core is, is about what I would consider a meaningful relationship versus kind of transactional stuff where you just kind of try to accelerate um, whatever thing you're doing, which in the end of the day is meaningless when you look back. And I think um, just long story short, like that's the key learning I took from Viktor Frankl that look at the end of the day, objectively, a lot of times there's not necessarily a meaning in something, but we can create a meaning in almost every situation. And that's what I'm very hopeful about. And that's where my hope comes from that, you know, look, I, I have a friend who had cancer, uh, which is, as you can imagine, one of the toughest situations you can be in. And, and, and again, objectively, th there's, there's no meaning in this. There's, there's, it, it, and his life now is certainly not as good as it was before. And yet what he said was, is in this situation, how much control do I still have? Okay, I will take this on. I will write about how this kind of cancer in a way affects me. So to help a couple of other people still to understand um, how that journey is. And, and maybe I can still have some kind of purpose in, in this. And so that's really at the core of this work to say, how can we always find some kind of meaning in this? And again, this is the opposite of being transactional. Well, it's certainly an interesting um, issue, an interesting book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Maybe we need to have a show about the Viktor Frankl version of the world versus the Primo Levi one. Very interesting. Uh, congratulations, Christian, on the new book. What else um, are you reading these days in addition to the serendipity mindset? What would you suggest? What other reading would you give our viewers, our listeners? I'm a big fan of, of Brittany Brown's work around vulnerability. I think it comes back to our question of how do you build kind of meaningful relationships versus kind of just kind of trying to portray something to the world and building your brand and all that kind of stuff that, to your point, is about selling, right? 
vulnerability is about saying, how do I embrace the things that I might be ashamed of a little bit, or I might be kind of like feel a bit insecure about. But if I find people who actually are with me on that journey, that's where the real kind of beautiful experience comes from. I, Andrew, in my life, my, the, the things that I messed up the most, like, like I've, I've, I've really messed up things in life in terms of, you know, one of my companies almost going bankrupt and really being bad and kind of trying to figure out how to, to go about this and things like this. And, and in those moments and, and right after that, like having the understanding of this and then connecting with other people who went through that existential fear of, oh my God, if I'm not the founder of this, who am I? Uh, if I X, Y, Z, like, you know, these kind of existential threads that, that you feel, those people are my closest friends, not the people where we, we had the biggest wins together and that was easy and everything else. And I think Brittany Brown is a lot about, uh, Brittany Brown is a lot of, about this kind of question of how do you embrace that vulnerability? So, so, so who is the author and what is the book? Well, one of the books, I, got, I have it here actually. Um, so her latest is Atlas of the Heart, um, Brittany Brown. And um, the, she, the, the book that I actually enjoyed more is, is uh, Daring Greatly, which is essentially this whole idea of, look, it's always easy also from the outside as a critic to say, oh, this is, this is crap, this is crap. But if you're like, once you're in the kind of, in, in, the, in the gist of life, what it's all about and trying to build things, that's kind of like that, that, that piece where in a way you want to connect with other people who, who understand that deeper meaning of what it means to, to, to lose, what it means to, to fail, what it means to all these kind of different emotions that are so tough in life but actually maybe they are the part of, of how we grow the fastest. And so that's it's the idea of once we embrace vulnerability, we can grow faster because we essentially allow ourselves to be human beings rather than machines or robots or meaningless kind of things in the world.